Welcome to the online teaching ministry of Pastor Rob Ginter and Farmdale Baptist Church. For more content, visit us online at farmdalebaptist.com. Good morning. James chapter 1, verse 1 is where we begin today. I heard the words of a pastor this week that, well, I'll, I'll sum it up for you. The, the shocking part was it, it sounded like he didn't care about your profession of faith. He didn't care about your profession of faith. Um, you might have heard of him. He's James. James, the brother of Jesus who wrote this book. Uh, it, it, it appears when we look at it, he doesn't care about your profession of faith. Because while denominations count things like decisions and professions, James seems to count fruit for salvation and not claims that you make with your mouth. Instead of counting professions, he counts possession for what matters most. The possession of your faith as opposed to the profession of your faith. In fact, the book of, book of James has a theme that what you believe about the Lord Jesus ought to do specific somethings in your life. That your faith is supposed to work both for you and through you and in you. It's not a body of knowledge that you can accumulate information and then you pass a test on it. There is a test after the accumulation of knowledge. And what is that test, my friends? Your very lives. Your very lives. So your theology is either practical or it's nothing. You either live your faith or you don't have any, according to what we see in the book of James. Because after all, you could be sitting here this morning, and if someone had, had told you that the building is on fire, and you turn your head to your neighbor, and you say, I believe he said the building was on fire. Now your tail remaining in your seat shows your neighbor that you don't really believe that the building is on fire and burning around you and collapsing. And how do we know that you don't believe that the building is collapsing and burning around you? Because you stay seated in it. So the book of James is helpful for us who have made claims with our mouths that we struggle to live out with our lives. This is very timely for us because... Many of us, or most of us, have an accumulation of Christian doctrine in our brains. Meanwhile, we look down on the poor. We are tempted, or maybe we do, give up in the midst of trials. Or we complain in the midst of trials. Speaking of complaining, we sin with our mouths. And we hear the commands out of God's mouth, and yet we don't do them. We don't care for widows, and we neglect orphans. If any of those are you, then you need the book of James. Why? Because many of us are recorded on paper as trusting in Christ and following him in baptism. 
The problem with Christianity is it is never meant to be a statistic on paper. It is not. That Farmdale could have theological notches in its belt for the, 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 the number of people who claim Christ and get wet. We were never meant to be a theological, theological statistic, my friends. But we who have trusted in Christ have trusted in a real Christ who makes real changes in our real lives. And that's why we need the book of James. The book of James is a very difficult book for us to go through because James is, once again, interested in your possession of faith as opposed to just your profession. How easy is it in our country to profess Christ? How easy is it? And yet, has anyone ever tried to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him? If you have tried to do that, you realize that that is where the rubber meets the road and that is where the war is waged. So, if you really have faith in the Lord Jesus, it ought to do something in you, for you, and through you. And you can't just be a Christian on paper. You have to be one in real life. And you have to have a faith that actually works. That's why we need the book of James, because our faith ought to do something for us. And what do you mean by do something for us? I mean that one of the ways that our faith does something for us is it's there when trouble comes. Not only should it do something through us and, and for us and to us, but how do you tell that when that's the case? When trouble comes, when trials are there. As one commentator put it, if, if our faith is no good when things get hard, it's just no good. Right? If our trust in Christ is not there for us when nothing and no one else is, then it is false. That's why we need the book of James. Because our trust in the Lord Jesus does something for us and changes how we look at trials that we go through. How so? Well, according to verse 2, you should be able to consider the trials you go, to, go through as absolute or pure all joy. How is that even possible? How is that even possible? Well, if you have faith that actually works, you can have joy in trials because we believe in the Lord Jesus. Specifically, for believers in the Lord Jesus, faith that actually works means that everything you go through can produce something good in you. So everything that you go through can produce something good in you. That's the overarching umbrella that we see before this verse. That's why we ought to be able to view our trials joyfully, because whatever we're going through is producing something in us that otherwise we wouldn't get unless we went through it. So notice this command to change in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So James uses a math word here saying that we ought to change the way we evaluate our life. Right? That we ought to, we ought to change how we look at our trials. And that we ought to take those trials and move them over into the column of pure joy. Consider it that way. Count it that way. So look at your marriage problems and say, pure joy. 
Look at your pay cut or inflation or the same, right? There's no difference between your pay cut at work or the inflation from the economy. Either way, less money. Pure joy. Kids picking on you at school? Look at the bullies. Pure joy, my friends. Pure joy. You get a bad report from the doctor? Pure joy. Miscarriages. Misunderstandings. Mistreatment. Pure joy. Pure joy. This sounds like crazy talk doesn't it? Why? Because we are normally wired in the culture around us to say that these two things in verse 2 can't be together. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. So what do we do? We live our life avoiding trials in search of joy. We want to have joy without the trials. We run from the trials to joy. And unfortunately, the trials are always there. Those two things together in verse 2 is, a, is, is insane talk to the people around us in this culture. That we can have joy and meet trials. Which means our life isn't supposed to be just one big run, one big chase away from trials. That can't be how it is. Bullies, bank accounts going under, questionable reports from the doctor. He's saying, have joy when you add all of that up and you evaluate that. Before we get to what he's saying, he's not saying that this is a cover-up. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying cover up what you're going through and pretend to like it. This is very important for us to think through. For Christians, we're never supposed to pretend that something that is terrible is actually wonderful. Did you know that? Something can be terrible, and we are never called to pretend that it's the best thing that ever happened to us. Don't listen to the people who do that. They are liars. And they don't live in this world. We're never called to pretend. Never. He's not saying that all the trials you go through are joyous occasions. Why are you so happy, Jim? Oh, just got a cancer diagnosis. Oh, that's wonderful. Hey, honey, why, why are you glowing like you're pregnant? Oh, just got in a fight with my in-laws. So great. Good. Just wonderful. Insanity. Insanity. It's not what he's saying. Not one of us. One of the commands calls us to pretend. Instead, we as Christians are called to evaluate all things within the context of God's truth. Not to pretend all things are wonderful, but to evaluate all things in the context of the truth of God and his word. That is what we are called to do. A hint of this is in the context of the verse. Who are the people that are supposed to evaluate their trials as pure or all joy? Who is it? My brothers. James calls them his brother. Now, the context of the book, the person who wrote this was Jesus' half-brother, James. It can't be John's brother, James, because Acts chapter 12 says he's already dead. It is James, Jesus' brother. 
He introduces himself in verse 1. And how would you introduce yourself if you shared the ancient Near Eastern equivalent to a bunk bed with the Lord Jesus? How would you introduce yourselves to people? Would you name drop? Well, he does name drop. He name drops God and Jesus, but he says that he is a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does he introduce himself? This person who is the brother of Jesus, how does he introduce himself to his audience? As a servant, as the property of the Lord Jesus. That's how James introduces himself, and that is who is being commanded here. You see this? It's a command. Count it all joy. Do it. You need to do this. Who would be able to do that? The people who are really in the family. The people who are, who, who, who's able to evaluate their life like this? Who's able to do this math with the trouble that they're into? The people who are actually legitimately in the family. That's who this is, right? So the command and the relationship. Right here in verse 2, the command. Count it all joy. Who? My brothers. The people who are in the family with James as a servant to the Lord Jesus. That's who this is. James doesn't church it up when he says who he is. In our day, like the lowest people on the totem pole, they, they do, they have, we have fancy names for people, right? We put the word associate in there. I've, I've been an associate, right? I've been an, a sales associate. So like, that's, that's what, what when, when I was that, like, they weren't like, excuse me, servant, could you ring me up on, on aisle three? Right? Because we shy away from this idea of servitude. Nobody does that. But this is how James introduces himself. Servant of the Lord Jesus. And what does, it means more to him that he's connected to the Lord Jesus like this and the people that are connected to him are brothers in a family who are receiving this command. He's a servant or slave of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. His brothers, that's the audience. Who are they? The people who are the 12 tribes of the dispersion, right? So this is an explosion of the term of the people of God. People who are Jewish Christians outside of Jerusalem, you could say, are likely his audience. But what are they for sure? They're people who are in the family. He tells them to consider their trials as joy because why? It proves that they're really in the family. Keep reading verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So in other words, you should view your trials joyfully because they prove genuineness. They prove genuineness. To those who are in the family, this is talking about when you unexpectedly, you're planning something and you run into something else. You meet trials, external pressure or testing. Is this talking about my situation? Yes. Yes, it is. Various trials, multicolored. You're on your way, and this is what you run into. You fall into it, as one uh, commentator put it. You have something else scheduled, and, and pardon this interruption, my friends. It is external pressure and trouble. In the providence of God, he scheduled it for you for this reason. And what reason is it? Test your faith. It tests your faith. 
Now, what he's saying is you can willfully move this situation from despair to joy because of something you know. Because of something you know. It's because of something you know. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. What's the first thing you know? That this is the testing of your faith. This is the testing of it. Do this. Count it all joy. Something you know allows you to do that. First, that your taste, your taste is fetid. That is, neither of those are words. Your faith is tested. Thank you. Faith is tested. This is important in our day because how many people claim Christianity? Less, but still quite a few. Quite a few still claim it. There are a lot of people claim trust in Christ, but a claim that's untested can't be trusted. A faith that's untested really can't be trusted. That's what he's saying here. And Mark 4, the Lord Jesus, is one of the, pla- is one of the places that he tells a parable of the sower. So the sower goes and he throws seed and scatters it on the ground, and the seed represents the word of God. There are various grounds or soil that the seed is on. Mark 4, chapter 4, the birds came and snatched the seed. Mark chapter 4, verse 5, the soil was shallow, no growth. Verse 6, the sun scorched it. Verse 7, the seed is choked out by the thorns. So there's this farming crisis in Mark chapter 4 and Matthew 13 and elsewhere. And what is the problem that's happening in this? External pressures. External pressures. Mark 4, 7, the seed is choked out by the thorns. External things come in and keep your heart from receiving the word of God and believing. Jesus even tells us how to interpret this text. He says in verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no roots in themselves, but endure for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. What Jesus is describing here in Mark 4 are people who claim Christianity for a little bit until that claim gets highly inconvenient. It's really inconvenient. That identity is out of step. That identity is on the wrong side of history, to use language in our day. It's highly inconvenient. The pressured for that word for believing and receiving that word. And when that pressure comes, when it comes, you are gone. That's what happens in Mark 4. Some of us might not have actually came to Christ for Christ. But claimed Christ for a specific moral improvement in our life. We claim Christ in hopes that a certain situation would go differently. We came to him wanting him to fix something, something very specific in a way that we wanted it to be fixed. And that is the, the, the depth of our trust, that we came to him for some type of moral improvement. In fact, I shared the gospel with a guy a while back, and he tried Christianity, for different stretches in his life, and his life seemed to go worse 
when he was doing it. So he left. And now the idea of Christ and Christianity disgusts him because of how his life went when he was involved. You see how sad that is? That's not how it works. It's not something you try. Christianity isn't, isn't, isn't a trial run, right? You got 30 days and you put your credit card in and you really hope you can cancel it before it costs you something. Don't you, are, you, are you all one of those people that you, you go through these free trials and they'd be like, oh, that'd be great. And you forget to put something in your calendar and there's a charge that shows up on your credit card and you're like, what's this? I know none of you do that. You've never done that. I know it. You're highly responsible. But let me tell you, I have done that. I was like, what is this charge? $150 for grammar software? Are you serious? <laughs> Just speaking generally, right? Just vaguely. $150? Like, oh, I was writing those papers and I needed a little help on that software and I put my credit card information in and they really charged me. So after 30 days, brother, they pulled the trigger. Some of us have treated Christianity like that. When in reality, what Jesus describes to Nicodemus is a new birth, my friends. Not a trial run. A new birth. But if somebody's doing a trial run instead of a new birth, this is the problem. It becomes very inconvenient to be a part of that trial so you cancel it before there's any charge on your credit card and you go on your way. And it proves that you're not genuine. So what we see here in James, he convicts us if we're tempted to fall away when it gets hard, we're tempted to, to, to complain when it gets hard, that we might not be a Christian and examine whether we've actually trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ because our trials will prove that we would rather have an easier life than Christ. So when we trust in Christ through trials, it goes, nothing else is going for me great, but Christ is on the throne. And I figured that out because everything else fell. And on Christ, the solid rock I stand here. He's the only ground that's solid. Everything else is falling. I'm trusting in him. Trials give us that unwanted blessing. It's the blessing that nobody wants. The very fact that you come out and you go, I'm for real. I'm hurting. I'm hurting so bad. But I'm real. It's a blessing. It's the blessing you would return if you could get it. But oh, it is so good to know that he is holding you when nothing else is. And that you are standing on him when everything else falls. Trials do that. Trials prove that you're not trusting in Christ and your circumstances. How do they do that? Your circumstances are terrible. So it shows that you're not trusting in them. And until you have that moment in which the things fall away, and there you are with just you and Christ, you question. You could question and go, I don't know. I don't know if, if like, how strongly, what's going on here? But brothers, when the hurt comes, when the person passes, when the funeral hits, you can look at your trust in Christ 
Go, he's all I have. He's all I need. He's all I've got. Praise the Lord, I'm real. Praise the Lord, I'm real. And he's faithful. You can know in the midst of trouble that you weren't trusting in your life to go a certain way because it's not going good. You were trusting in a real Christ regardless of how your life goes. And trials show that. They prove genuineness. And additionally, trials not only show where your trust is, but how strong your trust is. You should view your trials joyfully because it not only proves genuineness, but it produces endurance. It produces endurance. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see the person, the genuine one. You see the path, testing, trials. You have joy when you go through trials because the trials make it clear. You're that kind of person. You walk this kind of path. And what is this path? Endurance. Endurance, my friends. You're going through some things, and you're more, the more you go through them while trusting in Christ, the stronger you get. The word he uses for steadfastness is talking about your ability to keep going and persevere. Each trial, you answer the question, will I trust Christ in the midst of this? Is that a yes? Or is it a no? Will I trust Christ in this? Yes or no? And, and there it is, yes. I'm genuine. I trust Christ. And you grow stronger. Your outward man may waste away, but your inward grows stronger. R. Kent Hughes talked about this. He described this as spiritual toughness. Spiritual toughness. This is your ability to stick with it and to remain. Going through things and trusting Christ in them gives you ability to know that you are for real and that he is faithful and you, your trust in him grows all the more. Think about it. If you question uh, if, what leads you to believe that you'll be able to stand up in the midst of trial, what is it? If you can't think of anything, anxiety ensues. Anxiousness hits. However, but if you've walked with the Lord through even the shadow of death, and he has built up a resume of faithfulness, as he does for anyone who walks with him, you can take out the resume of faithfulness in your life and in the lives of everyone from Genesis to Revelation. If you take out his resume of faithfulness, it produces in you an amount of endurance that I'm going to keep going because I know and I trust and I'm baking my all that he is going to keep going. And that he is going to keep me going. He's never failed me yet. And my confidence is in him. And the longer you've trusted and walked with him, that he has, the statement, he has never failed me yet, has a long history to it. That you wouldn't get any other way than trusting him and going through pain. Going through suffering. This isn't talking necessarily, at least testing and temptation. This trials isn't talking about like a straightaway temptation to sin. However, as one commentator put it, this is like a, a external problems, pressure that could always turn into a temptation to sin. 
But when we're going through this, we know that it produces steadfastness. This isn't passive patience. This is a producing process. That's important. This isn't passive patience. This is a producing process in the Christian. That's what this is. How do we get it? How do we get this endurance? We walk with the Lord through things and we count them as joy because we know that the testing of our faith is producing this. I'm genuine in this situation, trusting the Lord. We get spiritually tougher, spiritually tougher. We say with more gumption and more passion, here I stand on Christ. When nothing else does. Is there any other way to get this than going through things? I'd say no. Is there any way to get spiritual toughness but going through trials? No. We, we go through things. However, here's a problem. If you look at the, the verses there in verses 3 and 4 in your Bible, there is a way to shortchange this process. In verse 4, if you see it. And let steadfastness have its full effect. So there's a way to shortchange this, to, to go through pain and have to pay the dumb tax yourself. To shortchange it. How, how do we shortchange this? Well, based on the context of the verse, uh, we might be tempted to grumble during trials. As opposed to counting them as joy, we might be tempted to dread them. As we said in weeks past, to eeyore them. I direct your attention to the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 14, which God spoke through Moses, this indictment, that all the people 20 or older, because they grumbled against him, Numbers 14, verse 20, all the people that grumbled against him would die outside of the promised land. Everybody 20 or older, whole generations of people. Why did he wipe out a full generation? Did they bow down to a golden calf? Yeah, some of them, but like he just wiped them out. Why did he wipe out all of them? You look at the census, 21 and up, gone. Why? Did they take for themselves foreign wives? No. Did they bow down to the, the idols of the culture? No. You know what they did? They grumbled. They complained. He wiped out a full generation because they complained. Let me say that again. He wiped out a full generation of people because they complained. They grumbled. And you say, okay, that's the Old Testament. Okay. And yet, in Philippians, the Apostle Paul tells us to do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of light in this dark and twisted generation my friends the command from the scriptures remain i told my wife i would i would really like to improve in this area because i'd like to do some things without grumbling or complaining wouldn't you i want to do i want to do some stuff i want to do some stuff without grumbling or complaining and yet the command of scripture remains do all things without grumbling or complaining. All things. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and 
twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, my friends. That's what he has designed for us. So you're grumbling against God when you meet trials of various kinds. It's a serious issue. It's a very serious issue. Take a note. Numbers 14, 20. And could it be that you're grumbling and complaining in your trials instead of counting them as joy? Like that's the opposite. And really, grumbling is what we do with our mouth that lets us know about the discontentment in our hearts. It's just really the complaining of our hearts that goes out our mouth. That's just what it is. So if we are a grumbler or a complainer, we are shortchanging the fact, uh, the affected intent of our trials. We're shortchanging our trials, and we're just going through them, complaining in them. And spiritual toughness that God intends us to develop remains immature. It remains immature. And why does it? Because we grumble and complain when we go through trials, instead of counting them as joy. Why? Because we have that in our heart, it comes out our mouth, and it shortchanges the desire that God has for us to let this steadfastness have a full effect because he has a a design for these things. These things are not accidents for you. My wife has, uh, my wife's a puzzle person and a gamer. Some of y'all know that. She is. She she does puzzles and and games sometimes. And she bought me a puzzle, uh, the office television show Puzzle. 500 pieces. It sounds a little advanced for me. But we, uh, her, her idea was for us to all do it on the table uh, together, and she did it, um, and the kids did it. Even the kids did it, man. The kids did it. But all the, all the puzzle, a lot of the puzzle pieces seemed to look the same to me, so I would put them in, and, and it wouldn't fit, and I'd put one, and she'd be like, that one's like got a lip on it, so you know that's not where that goes. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. So we got all the way to the end, 499 pieces. I mean, she got all the way, sorry, she got all the way to the end, 499 pieces. That was it. That's it. We cleaned our whole house. Cleaned everything. Maybe they only gave us 499. I'm not, I'm not shooting blame on anybody, but they could have given us 499 pieces. We threw it away. We th- I mean, because who wants a 499-piece puzzle? You know what I mean? Like, just who wants it? Have no need for it. It's just useless and, and waste, I guess. But that, my friends, is the way that we view our trials. Like, we're, one of them's coming at us, and we're like, no. Nobody wants this. This, isn't, this is useless. This is missing. Like, this isn't, this isn't, this doesn't fit. In our life, my life, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit, and it's not, it's not needed. However, if we go to work and somebody compliments us for anything, if anybody does that to you, uh, it's out of the norm. It's just you're not, not used to it. You go, oh, thank you so much. You sit down at your desk, and you're like, that's just what I needed. They go in, and they're like, oh, I love that shirt. And you're like, oh, thanks. I put it on today. 
And you go sit down, and you're like, that's just what I needed. And you go down and be like, hey, I, uh, I, I saw how you handled that situation with so-and-so yesterday, and uh, you really could have blew a top on, uh, on it, but, but you didn't. Good job. Or so-and-so, you, you really could have laid into them, uh, and you didn't. Look at you. You're growing up. You know, and you're like, oh, come on. And you get down at your desk, and you're like, that's just what I needed. That's just what I needed. For the Christian, James is telling us that when we're mistreated, we can sit down at our desk and say, that's just what I needed. When we go through trouble, that's just what I needed. When we're hurting, you can say, huh, that's just what I needed. In fact, all of the pain, all of the pressure, all of the hurt, all of the struggle are just what you need. That's so strange. What do you, what do you mean? They're just what I need. I'm saying, according to verse 4, that none of these things are by accident. None of these pressures, none of these struggles, none of this pain are, are unnecessary for you. Because of the Lord. We see that there in verse 4. That the Lord has a purpose for us in this. Peter begins his letter with this encouragement. That we're being guarded by faith for our ultimate salvation no matter what happens to us. Verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, knowing now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it uh, perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our trials, my friends, are necessary. And they're going somewhere. They're resulting in something. And what is that? Verse 4. Perfection. Perfection. Maturity. So who's the person? He's genuine. What's the path? Through endurance. And what's the destination? Perfection. Maturity. Completeness. Lacking nothing. That's why we can view our trials as joy because they perfect us. What you're going through is perfecting you as you're trusting Christ in it. And nothing is wasted. Nothing is useless. Nothing is like a 499-piece puzzle. It's not missing something. Your trials have everything you need in them for you from God. It's hard to hear, but you know it's true that He knows exactly what's good for you. And what's good for you being a genuine Christian, going through some things, trusting in the Lord Jesus, viewing our trials as joy as he perfects us. One translation calls what's going on here in verse 4 uh, maturity. So this is design and desire for you to grow up. God has no desire for Toys R Us kids. I don't want to grow up. I'm a toy... like. To the young people, there used to be a place and there was a giraffe and they had toys and they all closed. It's called Toys R Us. 
The point was that nobody wanted to grow up. They just want to go there and play with toys. And God says, my church can't be like that. All entertainment, nobody growing up. Mm -mm. No. And how does he make sure that they're not toys or us kids in church? Trials. Trials. That's how he does it. And they are for us. Now, it's getting close to Christmas. I, I saw some places that started Black Friday already. Did you all know that? Black Friday was like two weeks ago, according to some places. It's crazy. Now, uh, you, you ever have that family member who buys you something and it never fits? Or like you wore that size when you're 15 and they get it for you every year and you're like, I'm not 15. They don't know you. And it, it never fits. And you're just like, all right, another one for the donation box, or if, if they really love you, they'll put a receipt with it. You know, like, but every year, right? It's the same thing over and over and over again. God is not like that, my friends. He's not like someone who doesn't know you. He knows you, and he knows you so well that he gives you these trials, and he does so for your perfection. For your perfection. So now you can look back, and, and, and through trouble, through struggle, through misunderstanding, pain, and say, I needed that. I needed that. I didn't want that. Let's be clear. I didn't want that, but I needed that. And how do you know that you needed that? Because of the sovereignty of God. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Isaiah 45.7, The Lord, speaking through the prophet, says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The Lord is the one who does this, and he does it for the perfection of his people. Then the Lord's will and wise purpose to stand behind everything that we go through, and that we should not be discouraged when things seem out of control. They are for your perfection, my friends. Trust him in it and drag them over from the column of despair into the column of joy. Why? Because you're genuine. You're in the family. You are empowered by God to be able to do this. You're empowered by being one of the brothers or sisters, and you're commanded to do so. Because you're genuine, you're on the path of endurance, and therefore your perfection. If you're not a Christian, these things seem crazy, that, that we would think this and, and want this, that somehow that you could have joy in the midst of awful things without pretending and being fake, that everything is wonderful. No. See, there is a change that the Lord makes in an individual that allows them to be able to do this. They are something different. They are someone different. That's why James isn't talking to people who check boxes. He's talking to people whose lives are changed. And what does he say to them? Count it all joy. Like, I, I, don't, I don't even understand how that would work. Let me tell you how it works. There is a God who is holy and righteous above all things and always good. He is good and he does good. Romans 3 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means we all missed the mark with our lives. And what did God do? Does he wipe us out? Does he spit wrath out on us and fury and punishment? Because we rebelled against him. 
No, no. Romans 5, 8 tells us God showed his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God became a man in the person of Jesus to show his love for sinners, that he would be the sacrifice put forward by God to pay for all of your rebellion against God. And then, he died on the cross for our sins and rose on the third day, victorious over death, hell, the grave, and everything in between. And he commands us to turn from living our life the way we want to, to trust solely in him. And you know what he will do? He will, it won't be a box checking. He will give you a new heart, and you will be born again. The scriptures tell us, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Our new birth allows us to count things as joy when they are not joy-giving circumstances. And if you're not a Christian, you need to turn from your sin and trust solely in the person of the Lord Jesus. Pastor John is going to come up in a second with me, and we're going to have a time of response. We're going to uh, eat downstairs, come see me about that. But if you're not a Christian, if you're in the middle of a trial and your disappointment and discouragement that what the transformation that you're wanting to see happen in your life is not, and, and, and you, are, you realize you haven't really fully come to Christ, and you viewed him as a 13th step in the 12-step program, you need to be born again, my friends. You need to be born again. If you are a Christian, you realize he, he is commanding obedience that you would do this. Not just going along with how things are going, right? The world goes along with how things go along. The Christian does not go along with how things are going. They drag things over into columns based on the truth of God's word. That's what he's telling us to do. This isn't going along with feelings, my friend. This is going along with the word of God. So let's have a time of response and uh, repentance and trusting in the Lord together as he, he does this in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your scriptures, and they're good and they're hard <laughs> to uh, wrap our minds around at times. How might we do this? By the power of your spirit. So please uh, enable us to count things as joy and to have joy when circumstances are not joyous. Please do this for your church. In the name of your son, amen.